Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 65. Last week, I covered the history of the Tower of Eder, Paddan Aram, and Karath Arba. I also ended the episode about halfway through my planned narrative of the Edomites, stopping after covering their history as presented in the Old Testament. This week, I'm backing up a bit to begin the history of Edom as found in outside sources. I'll also cover the Horites and end with a summary of Genesis chapter 37. So let's get started. Through archaeological finds, some researchers proposed that the Edomites were associated, maybe even one and the same as the Sashu and Shutu. These two groups were nomadic raiders successful enough to warrant a mention in Egyptian text. One such text was a letter from an Egyptian scribe at a border fortress in the Wadi Tumilat. This Wadi is part of the Nile Delta and therefore a small bit distant from the territory we associate with the biblical Edomites. The letter was written during the reign of Merneptah, who was on the throne during the Egyptian 19th dynasty, towards the end of the 13th century BC. The letter speaks of the nomadic wanderings of, quoting, the Shashu tribes of Edom, end quote. Apparently, these people were making use of wells and watering holes in Egyptian territory. Archaeologists previously believed that no evidence of an organized state existed in Edom prior to the 9th century BC. But then, something huge was found. Well, like most large things, it actually started small. Later archaeological finds included early Iron Age settlements dated to between the 11th and 9th centuries BC, as confirmed from radiocarbon dating. And curiously, despite these counts being dated to the Iron Age, they appear to have been centered around copper mines. With a large one uncovered in 2004 at Kerbat Enahas, in what is modernly southern Jordan, this mine was so large that it seems to indicate a centrally organized Edomite government, which of course aligns with the text of Genesis chapter 36. And one other note, this was a copper mine in the Iron Age. Of course, we now live in the technological age, but we too still mine copper. From the sheer number of uncovered artifacts at multiple sites, it appears that the settlements in what we would associate with Edom peaked between the 8th and 6th centuries BC, a time that is thought to correspond with the later writings associated with them in the Old Testament. The current historical economic theory is that the Kingdom of Edom benefited from trade routes between Egypt, the Levant, Mesopotamia, and southern Arabia these routes that ran through its territory. Overall, the primary route is generally referred to as the Incense Road and was at its peak between the 7th century BC and the 2nd century AD. And one of the spices that moved along this route was frankincense, the highest quality of which originates in the modern country of Somalia on the east central coast of Africa. Also, as mentioned last week, Edom was along the so-called King's Highway, which connected Egypt with Assyria. And if you think about it, the territory of the Edomites was very poor agriculturally, 
so they had to rely more on trade than did their neighbors. It is thought that they produced and then exported both salt and balsam, relying on the area around the Dead Sea for both. In Genesis chapter 37, you will see balsam referred to as balm, probably with medicinal purposes. I'll get to that chapter very soon. It is during this time period that Edom is mentioned in the Syrian cuneiform text, which, given its location along the king's highway, is not a surprise. These mentions generally take the form of the Syrian names Udumi or Udumu. Also, in these scripts, we learn of three kings of Edom. First, there is Cosmolaka, who is thought to have been a contemporary of the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III, which would put him on the throne around 745 BC. Next, there is Malik Ramu, a contemporary of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, around 705 BC. And finally, Kalskabri, who ruled at the same time as the Assyrian king Esarhaddon, about 680 BC. It's worth noting that these three names do not correspond with any found in Genesis chapter 36, which means absolutely nothing, especially since the text from Genesis was for a time period well prior to the rise of the Assyrians. Mentions of the Edomites, or at least people thought to be the Edomites, have also been found in Egypt, and later than the previous one about the nobads and watering holes. These Egyptian inscriptions mention a people referred to as the Aduma. The Egyptian text also showed that the territory of Aduma sometimes bordered the Egyptians, which geographically does lend credence to the Aduma and the Edomites being the same people. Then came the Babylonians. Like I covered last week, the Edomites apparently sided with the Babylonians and aided them in conquering the two Jewish kingdoms. It is believed at this time the Edomites pushed northward, perhaps as far as Hebron. A few centuries later came the Greeks, led by Alexander, who began referring to Edom as Edumia or Edumi. In fact, from outside sources, at least those found to date, the last clear reference to the Edomites was in an Assyrian text dated to 667 BC. But no outside source has been uncovered that clearly indicates why they suddenly disappeared. And the general consensus is that they did not disappear and instead began to be referred to by this new name. The reason for the name change is generally thought to correspond with the adoption of Greek as the language of governance for the region. But it is also believed by many that they were driven from their native lands in the southern Levant by the Nabataeans towards Judah. Also at this time, apparently the Greeks aided some of the Edomians to immigrate to Egypt. And the Edomians and the Jews continued to fight amongst themselves. Ben Sira didn't lose any love for them, stating that the Edomites were among the nations whom his soul abhorred. Ben Sira was a 2nd century BC Greek Jewish writer from Jerusalem. He was the author of the book of Syrac which is considered to be canonical by Catholics in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Most Protestant churches consider it to be either instructional or to be disregarded altogether. Obviously, with the Babylonians, Judeans, Greeks, Nabataeans, and everyone else, there was much history unfolding in the region at the same time. And there will be a more comprehensive overview when the time comes.
During the Hasmonean civil wars of the first century BC, the Edomians assisted the Seleucids against the Jews, and the end result of this conflict was the absolute control of the region by the Romans. The Romans would adopt the same name as the Greeks for them. This country, well, maybe more of a loose confederation, apparently prospered for over 400 years. Strabo wrote that the Edomians, whom he identified as constituting the majority of the population of Western Judea, where they commingled with the Judeans and adopted their customs. But he also said the Edomians were a Nabataean origin, a group most commonly associated with the ancient ruins of Petra. Also, the Nabataeans are modernly thought to have originated in Arabia, not the Levant. Strabo was a Greek geographer, philosopher, and historian who lived in Asia Minor during the turn of BC to AD, so at the same time that Christ was walking in the region. Backing up a bit, I previously touched on the Maccabean Revolt, and it will get a more thorough in-depth treatment in the future. But for today, just know that the deuterocanonical book of 2 Maccabees, thought to have been written in 124 BC as a historical record of events some 40 to 60 years prior. Anyway, this book mentions a Seleucid general named Gorgias, and then goes on to call him the governor of Edume. Now, what is still unknown is if this general-slash-governor was a Greek or a native of the region. And, to cover all of my bases, some researchers believe that the reference to Edumia in that passage is an error anyway. Both the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches consider both 1st and 2nd Maccabees as canonical, and therefore part of their Bible. Protestants and Jews reject most of the doctrinal issues present in the work. Some Protestant churches include Maccabees as part of their Biblical Apocrypha, useful for reading in the church. But you can make your own choices. So, backtracking a bit, it was during the revolt that Judas Maccabeus conquered the Edomian territory, albeit only for a short time, around 163 BC. They were conquered again around 125 BC by a lad known as John Harkonnes, who then forcibly converted them to Judaism and made them part of the greater Jewish nation but only as second-class residents. Two notes about this. First, all of this, especially the forcible conversion, was against the advice of the Pharisees, and it only prolonged the animosity between the two peoples. Second, John Harkness was a Maccabean leader and a Jewish high priest from 134 BC until his death in 104. He was the son of Simon Maccabeus, they also made him the nephew of Judas Maccabeus. It was his father and two brothers that were murdered, allegedly by his brother-in-law, Ptolemy. With the death of his father, he became the high priest and therefore a national leader. However, he was not the king. That title would be claimed by his son, Judah Aristobulus I. There will be so much more on this intrigue at a later date. After the defeated Endumians enforced conversion at the hand of John Harkonnes, the Endumians essentially ceased to exist as a separate people and began to slowly integrate into the Jewish population. Then there was a leader known as Antipater the Endumian, who ruled Judea after the Roman conquest. 
he was believed to have been part Judean and part Edomite. You probably don't recognize his name, but you know of his son, Herod the Great. Herod's mother was Nabataean, and to note, Herod was reared Jewish. During the reign of Herod, the Endumian province was managed for him by a series of governors, including his brother, Joseph ben Antipater, as well as his brother-in-law, Costobarus. The Jewish-Roman historian Josephus, writing about a century later, referred to Upper Endumia and included in this region the villages immediately to the south and southwest of Jerusalem. These included Hebron, Bethshura, and Marissa. So, what he included in that territory was geographically essentially the same as it had been immediately following the Babylonian conquest of the Levant some 600 years prior. During his reign, Herod would lean on the Endumians for political and military support. He considered them to be much more loyal than the Judeans and the Israelites. Also, it is assumed, well, not really assumed, but seen, even in Herod's lineage, that the Edomites, Judeans, and Israelites had all intermarried and essentially commingled very thoroughly by the time Christ walked in the Levant. And one more thing about Herod before moving on. He was apparently not extremely popular in the region, due mostly to his oppressive methods of rule, aka tyranny, but also because he is partially descended from Esau and the Edomites. Now, if you think of history as a timeline, this gets us to the era of the history as presented in the New Testament. It is in the book of Mark, in chapter 3, that Endumia is listed beside Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon, and other lands east of the Jordan as towns and regions from where the disciples came. Unfortunately, the text doesn't say who came from there, but that it was included shows the more inclusiveness of the New Covenant, purposely redundant. Then, in the year 70, this time A.D., and according to Josephus, during Titus's siege of Jerusalem, 20,000 Endumians helped the Zealots fight for independence from Rome. When the Endumians arrived on the scene, the Zealots were cornered and being held under siege at the temple. The Endumians snuck into Jerusalem, apparently one rainy night, and managed to free the Zealots from the temple. The rebelling Jews were led by John, Simeon, Phineas, and Jacob. This would be one of the last mentions of the Endumians in the historic record, as after the Jewish wars, no reference to them can be found. But the name of the region of Endumia remained in use, at least through Jerome, which was at the beginning of the 5th century AD. Their religion, at least that prior to their forced conversion to Judaism, is essentially unknown. Now, there is a great deal of speculation, speculation that essentially aligns them with the other Levitine Semites. This theory concludes that they worship deities similar are perhaps the same as El, Baal, and Asherah. And one last note about the Edomites before moving on. There is a Jewish tradition stemming from the Talmud that the descendants of Esau would eventually become the Romans, and from that they would be the ancestors of all Europeans. And with that is the history of the Edomites. 
a little too much for one episode, but not quite enough for two. Also in chapter 36 are the Horites, but before jumping into the Horites, first Mount Hor, which they apparently are named after, or maybe it's the other way around. There are actually two mountains that bear the name. The first borders the land of Edom in the area to the south of the Dead Sea. The other one is next to the Mediterranean Sea and the northern border of the land of Israel, perhaps as far north as the Taurus Mountains. It is the first one that is associated with the Horites, and this mountain will become significant later in the Book of Numbers as the burial place of the priest Aaron, Moses' brother. Josephus wrote that Mount Hor was one and the same as Jebel Nebi Harun, which would make sense as that name is Arabic and translates to the mountain of the prophet Aaron. On its summit is the alleged tomb of Aaron, believed to have been built over its namesake's grave. It is a twin-peaked mountain in the Edomite range on the eastern side of the Jordan Araba Valley, but there is no consensus on the actual Hor. A few modern researchers identify it as other peaks in the region, not that it matters too much. Which brings me to the Horites. Well, there really isn't much in either the Old Testament or the outside historic record, so I'll just spend a minute or two on them and move on. The Horites were first mentioned in Genesis chapter 14 in the story of Lot. Then, in Genesis chapter 36, they are referenced as inhabiting the land around Mount Seir in the area that would become Edom. In fact, they are not mentioned again in the Bible after chapter 36. Early in the 20th century AD, according to Archibald Sace, a British Assyriologist and linguist, Sace claimed that the Horites were the same people as those the Egyptians called the Kar. In their inscriptions, the Egyptians said these people lived in southern Canaan, so at a minimum, the geography works. More recent research proposes that they were the same as the Hurrians, or maybe the Hivites. In chapter 14, they were part of a confederacy defeated by a coalition of eastern kings led by Shedoliomer of Elam. Refer back to chapter 2, episode 21, where this event was covered. Then, in chapter 36, the Horites intermarried with Esau's descendants, and with this, they forever became associated with the Edomites. Also in the chapter, the ancestry of Seir the Horite is not stated, and there is no reference in the Table of Nations. But the chapter does list Seir the Horite's sons and grandsons, so we get a little bit of their history. The same list can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. And there's a bit of a family connection. Esau's wife, Oholibamah, was apparently the great-granddaughter of Seir the Horite. And that's about all we know of the Horites. So, I'll move along in Genesis, which brings us to chapter 37. And, this chapter is a turning point in the history of the Old Testament. So, while I would normally spend just a few sentences summarizing the chapter, I'll dive just a bit deeper into this part of the Genesis narrative. Joseph was Jacob slash Israel's favorite son. Because of this, Jacob gave his son a nice, multicolored coat, apparently with long sleeves. 
and keep in mind that the dyeing of fabrics was much more tedious and expensive than it is today. Probably while Joseph was a teenager, the family settled in the land of Canaan. Then one night, Joseph had a dream that his brother's sheaves of grain bowed to his, and he unfortunately relayed this dream to his brothers. Listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? But that wasn't the end of it. He had another dream. This one where the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed to him. This caused his brothers to be even more jealous of him. But his father didn't overreact and kept the matter in mind. His brothers took it to mean that Joseph felt he was superior to them, and one day they too would bow to him. So this assumed superiority, along with them apparently knowing he was dad's favorite, caused much jealousy, to the point that the brothers began to plot his demise. They did not wait too long to spring into action. After his brothers had left one day, Jacob asked Joseph to travel to where they were herding his sheep and to check to ensure that all was well. As an obedient son, he did as his father asked. His brothers saw him coming and conspired for the final time. All but two wanted him dead, but Reuben and Judah did not wish for him to actually die at least not directly at their hands. So they all decided to grab Joseph and throw him into an empty well. Then they sat down for dinner. Not long after that, they looked up and spied. Now quoting from the New Revised Standard Version, a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, and resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. End quote. And the rationalization at the end is very telling. They then tore up his coat, soaked it in blood, and let Jacob assume that Joseph had been devoured by a wild animal. In the meantime, Joseph is taken to Egypt, where he is sold as a slave to the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And that's just about as good of a place as any to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the history of the people and places found in Genesis chapter 37. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, and I hope you are, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.